Okay, I'm jumping in on a random thing because uh, I'm tired of certain things and I've been wanting to pod on other things, but I have the schedule and I do things like this. So anyway, this is going to be a bit more political very quickly. It's just a little talk about something I was thinking about. So I was just on Twitter and there was a clip of Senator John McCain from 2008 at the famous Al Smith dinner where Republicans and Democrats are the, the, the candidates that are running for president go and they do a comedic routine and they sort of, bur- it's like a burn party, a little bit of a friar's club of the politics and they go do that. And, you know, John McCain's being funny towards Obama and Obama's being funny towards John McCain. Okay, that's all well and good. It's collegial, it's, uh, it's funny, it's whatever, okay? That's fine. And I think that's fine, and we like that. It just shows, you know, there's a little bit of unity. However, I am also reading something called Post-War Europe. It's a history of Europe from 1945 through 1989. The book finishes in 2005, so they kind of just do the whole thing. So it's basically post-war, post-World War II Europe. There's a lot of fascinating things in it. And one of the things that was interesting as they're talking about the fall of communism And one of the things that's always reiterated is there was no distinction between the state, the country, so the state being Czechoslovakia or Romania or Bulgaria or whatever, or or Yugoslavia, and the party, the Communist Party, right? And they ran it with an iron curtain, right? And another thing I didn't realize was that Russia, the the Soviet Union, really ran those countries and they had to check in and there was very little it was very much a vassal type thing where they had to check in and it was only a few a few countries that were really outside the bound so tito general tito in yugoslavia was a little bit of an independence it was very stalinist and um and poland was a little bit of an independent because it always had been and it had the catholic church which made it a little bit different than some of the other countries. And then you have Ceausescu in Romania and, and, and a couple other things in, in Hungary. You have the uprisings in Hungary. Hungary's is 68. Uh, Czechoslovakia's is 56. And essentially after that happens, there is no breaking out. They solve the Berlin Wall problem in 62. And really after the late, the mid, after the late 60s, nothing changes. Brezhnev comes in and it, and it stagnates and whatever. But the reason why I kind of thought of this and what really got me going was like there was one party in Russia, in the Soviet bloc, and they ran everything from the economy to what you could say to what you could do to whatever. And reform could only come from the inside. And it did. So after Stalin, who was one of the worst humans in history, uh, Khrushchev was able to slowly but surely denounce Stalin and say something new was going to happen. And they did it again with uh, so a little bit, not after Brezhnev, um, with Gorbachev. They opened it up, and that was actually the Pandora's box because the state and everything you can't have. You can't have a free economy and whatever. So anyway, that's just pieces that I'm putting together. But what really got me was something I put into my head, which was like, the United States is really a single-party country right? It is a capitalist, market-driven country with two parties that basically have minor differences on how they want to implement capitalist society, 
Now, do they argue and fight over uh, social issues? Yeah, but they still tick over po uh, They still tick over economically what they're going to do, right? You know, one is more tax, one is more uh, one is more laissez-faire, but ultimately they're both the same. So we have a one-party system with two, with a reform party and a conservative party. And that's really it. You really don't see insurgents coming from another party. There's no socialist or third party. We lament a third party comes in and, oh, they've ruined this duopoly and both sides condemn Jill Stein and both sides condemn uh, uh, Ross Perot and both sides condemn whoever is the flavor of the day. Because this single party system that we actually have, the Democrats and Republicans are the same. They just played a different master. So Republicans are more in line with oil and energy companies and a sort of traditional turn of the century power. And the Democrats are getting money from banks and your liberal kind of Silicon Valley money. So that's who the lobby, that's where they're getting their money from. But ultimately, it is capitalism nonstop all the way, open borders. Uh, they all agree. Democrats and Republicans agree that we should be open, we should have TPP, we should have NAFTA, we should have all these things that they both are the same from an economic perspective, right? Basically, they want to keep taxes low, you know, that's it. There's, it's a one-party system, and, this, and the party is the corporate money party. Uh, do they fight? Are there racists on the Republican Party and liberal wokeistas on the, on, the, on the left? Yes. And those two things actually head to the same place. They both lead to tyranny in their, in their end games because, hey, Russia was the most egalitarian country in the world, right? Women had equal rights everywhere. They, you know, they did a lot of stuff that was equal. They were comrades all the way. You were so equal that everyone's life sucked equally together, right? Where, and then you, on the other side, you have something like Spain under Franco, where it was so stratified and to, to one group that the country was run from Madrid. And if you weren't a Castellano and you were from Basque country or you were a Catalonian, you weren't allowed to speak that language. And the church held primacy and everybody went to church. And that was the way things went. And Franco was literally going to restore the monarchy before he died. And then uh, the king who just abdicated was like, you know what? I don't really want to be the president of Spain. Let's go democracy. He turned his back on Franco's plan. Franco probably rolled in his grave. But it's interesting to think of it that way. It's interesting to think of it that way. Do we really just have a one-party system with minor differences here and there? And the reason why I bring it up as a solution is in the 60s and 70s, or through history in Europe, they, most of the countries follow a parliamentary system, or they had sort of copied England in some sense, but where you could have multiple parties and you could run and it was a bit messy like ours is, but at least you could have a one issue party and that party would earn votes and do something. So if you looked at it in the U.S. with this regard, if we had a parliamentary system where the executive, where the, where the exec, without a president, 
where the party that got the most votes, or the most con- congressional seats, ended up po- selecting the leader, and that person would be the prime minister, the prime congressman. And we sort of did away with the Senate. It was just a flat, single house of parliament or whatever. Then you could have a nativist party that ran as close the borders, and that's all they would do. And you could have a Republican party that was traditional Republican party, laissez-faire, small government party. You could have a Democratic party that was really a labor party uh, of sorts, or the Southern Democrats would have split earlier on. They would have been Northern Democrats, and they had a different name, and a Southern Democrat that had a different name. Instead of this sort of amalgam of people that we're putting together, that doesn't really work. I mean, wouldn't it be great if we had a real Green Party? Now, I know we have parties in this country. They effectively don't exist. Yes, you can run as an independent, but the monopolies of the power of those two large parties effectively blocks any of those other things from happening. Like, there are million signature requirements. There are uh, monetary requirements. There's all this paperwork to sign up. Listen, Kanye West might be crazy, but the idea that he can't just say, I want to be president and be on the ballot if he gets, you know, a certain amount of people, I'm all for that. Let's just have more. Instead of less and more structure and fragility within our system, let it be more fluid. Let it open up. Let it be bigger. Let there be more parties. Let there be things that they have to become coalitions and we have to learn things. Listen, it's not perfect and it will break. But I think the frustration we all have with our single party system with two uh, subdivisions of Republican and Democrat is that there's a lot of conversations and groups of people that aren't represented. Like if they were a gay rights party, that would be great. They get their seats in New York, they get their seats in San Francisco, and they have to form a coalition to help pass bills. Or if there was a, a pro-rights, a pro-life party, or a woman's feminine, like, and then all those different groups could literally join together and be like, hey, we're a coalition, we have five different parties, and this is how we are. Instead of trying to house themselves inside of this democratic coalition of things that don't really go together, because... You know, right now you have Bernie and AOC and, and the squad, and they're kind of this left wing. They would be basically your Democrat, your socialist wing of the party, but maybe they could just run as social Democrats. Social Democrats. And that's what's happened in, in, you know, in, in Europe and France is like you do get this plurality. You get different stuff. It happens. And you have to dissolve parliament and you have to try and start again. Now, some of those problems cause other problems. Like in France, they had to make the executive. The president of France is very, very powerful. He gets an eight-year term. So maybe there is nuance and things we have to change. Maybe we have to multiply the number of seats in the country. Maybe, you know, for instance... England has 500 MPs. It's the size of New York State. And we have 436. We have 538 between the Senate and the House. Maybe there should be 1,000 representatives, right? Maybe Washington should be bigger. And then you stop gerrymandering, right? You just go, okay, we're taking the country. We're drawing it into squares. We're putting it by population. It has to have this many people. This is the minimum. We go by, say, 
you know, some, some system, and we just start dividing it by squares of, of population. We literally run an algorithm. So that means that, hey, listen, if the line is the line and it's, and it's a different congressman over there, maybe more fighting is better in Congress. Maybe deadlock is better because that way we have to have more conversations. There's more voices, you know, within the Republican Party right now, you basically can't disagree with the president or you're just destroyed or you can't disagree with Mitch McConnell. But if you could take the Republican Party and shatter it into 10 different constituencies, maybe you'd get a different conversation. So I'm just thinking out loud. I mean, why do we have to, why does our system have to be sacrificed? The, the Constitution is not written in steel tablets and carried around like the fucking Ark of the Covenant, like, you know, we, we, before any army, we win. It's a piece of paper written by guys in the high enlightenment era of reason, right? High enlightenment era of reason. They believed what they believed and they were reacting to things that were happening philosophically in England at the time. Not anything else. In England at the time. And the two houses were Adam Smith, John Locke, and, oh, I can't remember the other one. Hobbes, Hobbes and Locke. And they both were reactors against what had happened with Charles II and the, and the English Revolution and the Restoration. They both were reacting to that. So I've just been learning about that as well. And you hear some of the things they tried to build out were from that, from the results of that on Cromwell and all that stuff. And so that stuff simply translates to the U.S. later on through books and reading and enlightenment. And why do we hold the, the Constitution sacrosanct? It's not a perfect document. It should be changed. It should be edited. It should be redone. We should be changing things all the time. The fact that it's so rigid uh, is so strange to me that it has to be this way. But anyway, the takeaway is we have a one-party system, and it can only reform from itself. And the only way that's going to happen is if they get together and recognize that they're one thing and try and break apart. I'm not saying we're having a revolution today, and I'm not saying we're having one tomorrow, but something has to happen. All right, this is my supplemental post podcast.